Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. My name is Mitch Lerner. I'm Associate Professor of History and Director of the Institute for Korean Studies here at Ohio State University. And it's my pleasure to welcome you all to the inaugural event for the 2010-2011 lecture series sponsored by the, the uh, IKS. Before we get started, though, there are a number of people I need to thank for making today's event possible, so bear with me for a moment, if you will. Let me start at the top and say thank you to University President Gordon Gee and Associate Provost Dieter Bonner at the Office of International Affairs, along with everyone who works in their offices for the, su the support they've provided. Critical assistance for today was also provided by the Rashan Center for International Security Studies, uh, directed by Professor Craig Jenkins, provided by the Department of History, directed by Professor Peter Hahn, and provided by the Department of Political Science, directed by Professor Rick Herman. I also want to single out the Korean, Study, the Korean Students Association and the Korean International Students Organization and their director, Professor Danielle Pyon, for all of their help in putting this together. And finally, and, and maybe most importantly, I want to say thank you to the people at the East Asian Studies Center for their invaluable help. I would single out our terrific director, Professor Patricia Sieber, who has responded with great cheer to the massive amount of frantic emails I have sent her over the past couple weeks. <laughs> Uh, as well as our administrative experts, Amy Carey and Michelle Atias Goldstein, who continue to do the impossible in rescuing me from myself. I would also like to thank the predecessor, my predecessor as director of IKS, Professor Chan Park, who I think is here somewhere. Uh, it is always easier to take over something that has a solid foundation, and Dr. Park has really devoted a lot years to advancing the study of Korea at this university, and I want to thank her for what she's done in the past, as well as the invaluable counsel and wisdom she has provided to me over the last few months. So, to everyone who assisted, I just want to say thank you. Now, our topic for today is the U.S.-Korean relationship, both now and in the future. I'm a historian, and so that means I generally assume I can't understand anything unless I go back and look at it for 50 or 60 years. And then, of course, after studying decades of materials, uh, I turned it all into a 40-page article with 25 quotes, 100 footnotes, and three obscure references to the Founding Fathers. <laughs> so last night, in deciding how I might set the stage for today, I decided to step back in time. And I went to my computer and opened one of my many electronic databases full of Korean material. And I stepped back in time about 60 years. Almost immediately, I came across an interview conducted by the editors of U.S. News and World Report, an interview conducted in May 1949 with Senator Tom Conley of Texas. Senator Conley was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee at the time. And one of the first questions of the interview, the editors of U.S. News and World Report asked him, quote, do you think the suggestion that we abandon South Korea is going to be seriously considered? Conley responded, quote, I'm afraid it's going to be seriously considered, because I'm afraid it's going to happen whether we want it to or not. I'm for Korea, Conley added. We're trying to help her. But South Korea is cut right across by this line. North Korea are communists with access to the mainland, and Russia is right over there on the mainland. Whenever Russia takes a notion, Conley concluded, she can just overrun Korea. The editors of U.S. News World Report seemed a bit skeptical. One of them asked, quote, but isn't Korea an essential part of the defense strategy? Conley responded, no. In fact, he added, I don't think it's very greatly important at all. Four years later, 
another authority on international relations, agreed. This time it was Winston Churchill, who in 1953 noted that, quote, Korea does not really matter now. And he admitted, I never heard of the bloody place until I was 74 years old. <laughs> well, in this case, then, the past is useful, most obviously, in order to show how much things have changed. Now everyone in the United States has heard of Korea, and almost no one would claim that it was, quote, not very greatly important. The Republic of Korea has become one of America's most vital partners. Two-way trade between the countries in 2010 totaled almost $90 billion, making the Republic the seventh largest trading partner for the United States, and making the U.S. the third or fourth largest partner for Korea. Cultural ties between the two nations continue to grow. A fact that I learned firsthand just a month or so ago when I went for a trip to Korea. And just before I departed, my 15-year-old daughter presented me with a list of CDs that I was to bring home. <laughs> K-pop, she said. Uh, and it is much to my regret that I actually complied, because now the, the cacophony of something called Generation Girls, or Girls' Generation, <laughs> is dominating my living room. And of course, the alliance remains, despite what Senator Connolly claimed in 1949, one of the critical components of stability and of American security interests in Asia. Korea then does matter. And as we face the challenges and opportunities of the 21st century, it will likely matter even more. And I can think of few people more qualified to walk us through these challenges and opportunities than our current guest, Ambassador Han Duk Su. Ambassador Han has served as Korean Ambassador to the United States since May of 2009. Before that appointment, he served as the 38th Prime Minister of the Republic of Korea, 2007-2008. He has, however, held many other distinguished positions within the Korean government, including service as Minister of Government Policy Coordination, Minister of Trade, Senior Secretary to the President for Policy and Planning, and many others. It is therefore my great privilege and honor to welcome to the Ohio State University, Ambassador Han Duk-soo. Thank you. Professor Lerner, uh, for your very kind remarks. Thank you, everybody. Good afternoon. One of the advantages to attending a big public university like this is that if the football team has a bad year, there's always basketball, or men's <laughs> soccer, or field hockey, or men's tennis. I went to Harvard, where students don't have that kind of luxury. In 1990, a freshman from Odessa, Texas, joined the football team and quit halfway through the season because he found it less challenging than high school. <laughs> I've traveled around the United States quite a bit during the past couple of years. And I was here in Ohio in June last year for events in Cleveland and Cincinnati to advocate the uh, benefits of Korea-US free trade agreements pending at that time. My purpose was to promote trade agreements that Congress passed and President Obama signed last month. I'll talk more about that later, but first I want to talk about what made it possible and that is the close and mutually beneficial friendship that the United States and the Republic of Korea have enjoyed 
for the last 60 years. So let me start with a brief history of Korea-American relations. The first official connection between the United States and Korea occurred in 1882 when we signed the Treaty of Amity and Commerce known in Korea as the Jemulpo Treaty. The first of its 14 articles proclaimed Korea and the United States of America hereby establish everlasting enmity and friendship between the two peoples. It was Korea's first treaty with the Western country. King Kojong of Korea at that time agreed to it because he thought the United States was the only Western country he could trust. Unlike Great Britain, France, Spain, and other European countries, the United States had not colonized Asia and Africa and seemed to have no imperialist designs. The Jemapa Treaty had some of the elements of the modern free trade <coughs> agreement that are taking hold around the world today. It also allowed Korean emigration to the United States, allowed American Christian missionaries to spread the gospel in Korea, and provided for the mutual defense of both countries. And it triggered a migration of Americans to Korea and vice versa. The first Korean diplomatic delegation to America arrived in 1882, and Lucius Foote became the first U.S. ambassador to Korea in 1883. Because King Bojong trusted Americans, he hired a number of them to serve as advisors and to introduce modern education, medicine, public health, technology, public administration, and democratic ideas to Korea. For example, Thomas Edison's firm introduced electricity to Korea, while other American entrepreneurs built streetcar lines, an electric power company in Seoul, and a 40-mile railroad line from Seoul to Incheon. By 1910, American missionaries had built 800 schools in Korea with a total enrollment of 41,000. That was more than twice as many as attended Korean public schools. The American schools were highly regarded and some missionaries in China sent their children to them. One of them was Ruth Bell, the future wife of the Reverend Billy Graham. There's a special cemetery in Seoul where about 100 Americans are buried. They came to Korea in the 1900s, worked in the Korean government as Christian missionaries, as doctors, as, as educators, and as businessmen. They loved Korea and asked to be buried in their adopted country. In 1910, Japan invaded Korea and occupied it, sometimes brutally, for 35 years. There were about 5,000 Koreans living in the United States in 1910. The Japanese wouldn't let any more emigrate here, and none of those who were here wanted to go back to Korea while Japan controlled it. So they stayed and got by on the limited Korea choices available to them. Then came Pearl Harbor, which must have seemed cruel, cruelly ironic to the 6,000 Koreans living in the United States, 
1941. They must have felt that that was nowhere, there was nowhere they could go to escape Japanese aggression. About 100 Koreans joined the U.S. Army, many of them as linguists and intelligence officers. For example, Peter Hyun, who emigrated to Hawaii in March 1903, joined the Army during World War II and landed in Korea as a measure, as a measure with the U.S. occupation force in 1945. Alice Hyun joined the Army during World War II and also went to Korea in 1945. Both Peter and Alice worked for the U.S. Civilian Information Control in Seoul. Their job was to gather intelligence on potential enemies of the Korean people. At the war's end, Japan was forced to end its occupation of Korea. Presidents Franklin Roosevelt and Prime Minister Winston Churchill had agreed throughout the war that Korea should eventually become free and independent. But in 1945, Joseph Stalin entered the discussion. As a neighboring country, the Soviet Union had a greater strategic interest in Korea than the United States or England had. The Soviets wanted access to Korea's ports, so Korea was divided in half at the 38th parallel. This turned out to be a momentous decision. Five years later, in the pre-dawn hours of June 25, 1950, 90,000 North Korean soldiers came screaming across the 38th parallel with the intention of conquering South Korea for the communist regimes in Pyongyang, Beijing, and Moscow. They almost succeeded, and they would have succeeded if the United States had not intervened on our side and driven them back, thus ensuring the survival and continued freedom of the Republic of Korea. By any standard, the Korean War was one of the most horrible of the 20th century. Korea's rugged mountainous terrain, broiling hot summers, frigid winters, and the unexpected entry of China into the war made it a nightmare for the two million Americans who fought in it. About 36,000 Americans died in Korea, including 1,823 from Ohio. The war ended with an armistice in 1953. The following year, the United States and South Korea signed a mutual defense agreement, which is still in effect. Then marked the beginning of the Korea-U.S. alliance, which persists to this day. At war's end, the Americans could have left us to fend for ourselves, but they didn't. They stayed and helped us rebuild our country. That war left Korea in shambles, both physically and economically. In 1960, it had an economy of about $2 billion and a per capita income of only $79. The country had a very small natural resource base and a paucity of productive farmlands. So the government decided that the way to climb out of the hole was to start building things and selling them to other wealthier countries. Thus, with America's protection and support, we rebuilt our factories and infrastructure and got to work, and the results are plain to see. 
After President Kennedy established the Peace Corps in 1961, about 2,500 American volunteers served in Korea during the ensuing 20 years. Today, Korea has its own Peace Corps. It, it is called World Friends Korea. Established in 2009, it expects to send about 20,000 Korean volunteers to developing country by 2013. Korea today is a world leader in heavy manufacturing, ships, motor vehicles, and steel, and in high-tech manufacturing, semiconductors, and consumer electronics products. Korea is a member of the OECD and the G20. Formerly a beneficiary of foreign aid, Korea is now a donor, and we recently won the competition to host the 2018 Winter Olympics. Korea's post-war alliance with the United States helped make all this possible. For more than half a century, the United States has maintained a powerful military presence in Korea and has provided a huge amount of economic aid for the restoration of Korean economy. That has allowed us to concentrate more on economic growth than on protecting against North Korean aggression. I said a minute ago that Korea had a $2 billion economy in 1960 and the per capita income of $79. Today, it has a $1 trillion economy, the world's 15th largest, and the per capita income of more than $20,000. Its trade volume amounts to about $1 trillion per year, and its balance of trade in goods and services with the United States is almost equal. During the recession of 2008-2009, Korea managed to keep its economy in the black, although not by much. Our GDP grew 2.8% in 2008 and meager 0.2% in 2009, but positive growth rate. It jumped to 6.2% last year and is projected at 4.3% this year. Our debt-to-GDP ratio is only 33.4%. And our September 2011 unemployment rate was 3%. Korea recovered from the recession faster than almost any other developed country. Our economy today is in very good health. The one weak spot is inflation. It stood at 3.9% in October, largely because of rising food and energy prices. Today, the friendship between Korea and the United States is stronger and more vital than ever before. Korea has gone from being America's patron to being America's partner. This was affirmed beyond doubt by President Lee's very successful visit to the United States last month as the guest of state. Keeping the peace on the Korean Peninsula has always been the most important mission of our alliance. That has not changed and is not likely to change anytime soon. But our two countries also work together on a host of issues in the regional and global arenas. For example, Korea has a provincial reconstruction team in Afghanistan supporting security, governance, and economic development. There is a Korean Navy destroyer in the Gulf of Aden contributing to the U.S. and EU-led anti-piracy operation off the coast of Somalia. 
Korean and American personnel are working side by side in more than a dozen peacekeeping and humanitarian aid missions around the world. And scientists from our two countries are collaborating on dozens of research projects related to climate change, infectious diseases, energy efficiency, and other pressing issues. In the economic area, the United States and Korea are major trading partners. About $88 billion worth of goods crossed the Pacific last year en route from one country to the other. Korean businesses like Samsung, Hyundai, and LG operate about 900 businesses throughout the United States, and they employ thousands of Americans. Korean businesses invested $5 billion last year in their U.S. operation, compared to $2 billion the U.S. companies invest in Korea. In 1960, about 10,000 Koreans lived in the United States. Today, the Census Bureau puts the number at 1.3 million, million, although we think it's closer to 2.5 million. Only China has a larger Korean immigrant population than the United States. There are large and prosperous Korean communities in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, and many other American cities. There were more than 72,000 Korean students enrolled at U.S. college and universities in the 2009-2010 school year. That number was surpassed only by China and India, the world's most populous countries. About 1.1 million Koreans visited the United States last year for vacation, business, or visiting family members. So you see that the ties that bind our countries together are many and diverse. As we have drawn closer though, it has become apparent that our 21st century alliance is still based on 20th century priorities. So in June 2009, President Obama and President Lee of Korea unveiled the joint vision for the future of the alliance. It spelled out a number of things the two countries would do together in the 21st century. The joint vision is a shared commitment to cooperate on a number of priority issues, such as putting both countries on a low-carbon, green-growth trajectory, increasing the civil exploration and use of outer space for peaceful purposes, and elevating the use of nuclear energy also for peaceful purposes. At the same time, the joint vision made very clear that deterring North Korean aggression was still the alliance's most important priority. Unfortunately, neither South Korea's miraculous economic growth nor its deepening friendship with the United States has changed the fact that half the Korean peninsula is ruled by a dangerous, unpredictable regime that has nuclear weapons capabilities and regularly threatens to use it. The vehicle we've employed to try to persuade the North Koreans to give up those weapons has been the six-party talks, which began in August 2003. The six parties are the two Koreas, China, Russia, Japan, and the United States. 
In September 2005, after two years of negotiations, North Korea agreed to abandon all nuclear weapons and existing nuclear programs in exchange for energy assistance and security assistance from other parties. The agreements also gave North Korea the opportunity to normalize relations with Japan and the United States and to engage in joint efforts for promoting security cooperation in Northeast Asia. In November 2005, though, the North Koreans walked away from the agreement. In July 2006, they conducted long-range missile tests, and in October 2006, they conducted its first underground nuclear test. Nonetheless, the six-party talks resumed in 2007, and some progress was made toward denuclearization of North Korea. But the talks collapsed again in 2009. The North Koreans conducted a second nuclear <coughs> test in May 2009, four months later after President Obama's inauguration. In March 2010, they torpedoed a South Korean naval vessel in South Korean waters and killed 46 crew members. In November 2010, they fired artillery at a South Korean island in the Yellow Sea, killing two Marines and two civilians. One result of all these provocations is that the six-party talks are on hold for now. Last month, though, U.S. and North Korean officials met in Geneva to discuss the possibility of reconvening them after two rounds of talks between North and South Korea. I want to point out that the United States and the Republic of Korea have the same, same vision of the future of the Korean Peninsula, a complete, verifiable, and irreversible end to North Korea's nuclear weapons facilities and the eventual reunification of the two Koreas under a democratic government. Finally, the joint vision holds that the U.S. and Korea will work together on finding a way to ratify the Korea-U.S. Free Trade Agreement, or so-called Chorus FTA. I was in the Oval Office on October 21st when President Obama signed the legislation that will put the FTA into effect once the Korean government has ratified it. We are trying to make it happen as soon as possible in Seoul, Korea. If you are not familiar with it, this is an agreement to allow the free flow of goods and services between our two countries, unhindered by tariffs or other barriers to trade. Right now, U.S. goods exported to Korea face an average tariff of 11.4%. Korean goods shipped to the United States face an average tariff of only 3.7%. When the agreement takes effect, both countries will eliminate most of their tariffs immediately and phase out the rest over periods of 3 to 10 years. About 80% of Korea's tariff on U.S. imports will go away the day the agreement takes effect. More than 95% will be gone within 5 years. This will bring job growth and economic growth to the United States. The Obama administration estimates it will create about 70,000 jobs in manufacturing and 29,000 in agriculture. An economic analysis that Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon released in January said it could create as many 
as 280,000 American jobs. The U.S. International Trade Commission, a non-bipartisan, a non-partisan independent federal agency, predicted the Coros FTA would increase exports to Korea by as much as $11 billion and add as much as $12 billion to U.S. gross domestic product. Ohio will certainly share in that growth. In fact, it already has. Exports from here to Korea almost doubled between 2002 and 2010 from $347 million to $640 million. And they are on track to exceed $690 million this year. Ohio, being the birthplace of aviation, is fitting that one of its leading exports to Korea is turbojet engines and parts. They, they face a 3% tariff in Korea, and it will go away when the agreement takes effect. One of the complaints about Corus that we hear again and again is that it benefits big corporations at the expense of everyone else. That is absolutely false. During my travels around the United States over the past couple of years, I have met countless small business owners who were excited about what the FTA would do for them. One of those businesses is the Pipeline Development Company, or Plitco, in Cleveland. Plitco has 100 employees. They make pipeline parts and repair fittings, which face an 8% tariff in Korea. Politico competes with companies in, in the European Union, which entered into a free trade agreement with Korea in July 1st. Without the Coros FTA, Politico will be priced out of the Korean market. There are hundreds of small and medium-sized businesses in the U.S. that export or want to export products and services to Korea. The Coros FTA will allow them to stay in the game. President Obama has set a goal of doubling exports by 2015 and creating 2 million jobs. Putting the Coros FTA into effect will be an excellent start. It will also nourish the larger Korea-US alliance by making clear that the United States intends to stay engaged in, in, in East Asia economically, politically, and strategically. In closing, let me say that Korea's perception of America today is similar to King Ko Jong's in 1882. We see the U.S. as a country we can trust, as a moderating influence in a region where moderation is sometimes in short supply. Our alliance with the United States is extremely important to us, and not just because of America's unequaled military and economic strength. It's important also because of our shared values and beliefs. We share a commitment to freedom, democracy, and free market. We share a belief that people ought to be allowed to pursue their dreams and that governments should help create the social and economic conditions that allow them to do so. And we share a belief that we are better served by global engagement or marching toward the world, as my President Lee put it, than by turning inward. The United States has always been there for us, and Americans can always count on our being there for them. 
with that, I will conclude my remarks. Thank you very much, and I would like to take your questions if you have. Thank you. questions and I'm going to take host prerogative and, and offer the first one. Uh, you mentioned briefly in your talk North Korea, obviously that's an issue of great concern in the United States. There are those Korea watchers in the United States who seem to think that there is a softening of President Lee's policy towards the North over the last year or so. They would point to the uh, appointment of Yu Woo It as the Unification Minister, who is well known for his more flexible approach. There has been the release of about $7 million in medical assistance through the WHO, um, appointment of committees to explore economic expansion. I wonder if you can comment on whether or not you think the Lee administration is undergoing a change in the way it deals with North Korea, and, and perhaps speculate on what the final year of the President's administration holds for Korean relations. You have the best questions I have ever faced. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm that's fine. Next. <laughs> okay, uh, I can say three things. The first one, United States and Korea together in a very, very close policy coordination are taking a quite a principled approach. We are proposing two ways for North Korea to adapt. One, they can restrained from the provocations and they open their economy and they feed their people then <coughs> denuclearize of course then international community including Korea and the United States will help them uh, in making the adequate developments which will be necessary for sustainable growth. The second option we are proposing is that if North Korea does not follow that path and continue to develop their nuclear capabilities, which is not legal and which is in clear violation of international rules and regulations, North Korea will be more isolated and they will not subject to any help from the international community. But we are always are very cautious in, in that this regime of North Korea do not care about their people. So we, should, we are very, very cautious in not eliminating some of the humanitarian assistance to North Korea. We don't like the regime and we would like to isolate the regime and we would like to penalize the regime and we are sanctioning the regime. But the people of North Korea, we believe, should survive. So while there was a very big provocations last year, we consciously you know, carved out the humanitarian assistance uh, that we should make to North Korea. They are malnourished. Their medical services are in terribly poor uh, conditions uh, and things like that. So. When, uh, you know, Professor Lerner, when you feel that Korea and U.S. position are strong, that means you put more emphasis on the principle. And when there is a, some flexibility and, uh, you know, some perceived change, is that we will be more cautious on, on rather being, you know, uh, more flexible on our 
humanitarian assistance. But we are making every caution that our assistance to North Korea will be you know, taken advantage of by the military or by the wrong people who should not be eligible for that kind of assistance. So the second one, President Obama and President Xi uh, last October, it was October uh, 12th, they had dinner outside White House. Fortunately, they were successful in finding out one Korean restaurant. <laughs> and they went out together and they had a quite uh, serious and candid discussions over uh, Korean food with Secretary Clinton's presence. And they, they made it clear that they will continue that principled approach. The only flexibility they, they would like to exercise is that we will target the real vulnerable group of North Korean populations, especially young and pregnant and, and women uh, in, in North Korea. The third, as a conclusion, I will say that we will continue and we will take the principle of clearly posing those two options for North Korea. Is North Korea who should adopt the, the path where they should go? But in the, in the midst of that process, uh, we will exercise some caution and flexibility in not debilitating too much the North Korean people who are suffering and who are oppressed uh, by the wrong and terrible uh, inhumane regime uh, in North Korea. Turn over the floor for other questions. Can you hear okay in the back? Other questions? specific 29,000 jobs in agricultural sector and 70,000 jobs in the manufacturing. So as I said, Korea's tariff is higher than U.S. tariff because U.S. is already open and free market with only 3.7% average tariff. For Korea is 11.4. So through these free trade agreements, we are eliminating both. So it will level the playing field for U.S. manufacturers. In Ohio, uh, also the agricultural sector will, in Ohio will, will benefit. The major areas for Ohio now will be some of the machinery industries, automobiles and parts and components of the aviation parts and the, uh, you know, the, the the parts and components which are used for uh, ref refrigerating facilities uh, and so on. So the broad-based uh, you know, manufacturing base in Ohio will benefit in every area because in every area Korea's tariff is higher uh, than the tariffs of the United States. In agriculture, uh, it will benefit. And the, the question naturally arises, 
then what will Korea gain from this agreement? We may not gain in the short term. We will gain in medium and long term by more competition, by more you know, flow of you know, some kind of uh, strategic uh, alliances among U.S. and Korean businesses. But in the short term, it will be Korean consumers who will benefit, where the tariffs are high, non-tariffs are existing. By elimination of those two major areas of bottleneck to trade, Korean consumers, which is now 48 million people and one trillion economy, will get more you know, lower price high-quality products from Ohio and from the United States. And I would note that you're meeting with Governor Casey tomorrow, just to work on yeah, some yeah, yeah, yeah. Other questions? Yes, in the back. Before explaining some of the domestic uh, Korean political situations, do you have many relatives in Korea? Then why don't you call them to members <laughs> uh, of Congress? That's exactly what I did last year and this year as we crisscrossed the United States. Uh, even in Ohio, uh, we got a rather you know, very cautious support. Uh, we got a great help from Senator Portman, who, who who has the strong belief that trade will create jobs for the United States, but also there are other you know, members of Congress who think otherwise. That's the democracy. That's exactly what happens in Seoul now, but I think that uh, we can make it as soon as possible. And there are some you know, the, uh, arguments uh, which is not, I think, not well grounded, uh, but as you may see, you know, my presidents visited the you know, National Assembly and had a meeting with the speaker and the leadership that uh, they should act upon this as soon as possible. And they asked one thing that ISD, which is too much complicated thing, that's uh, investor state dispute settlement mechanisms. Opposition party think that it's a turnover of Korea's sovereignty to arbitration agency and so on, which is rather more, uh, I don't think that they are tied to rational arguments, but uh, my president said that if this agreement passes at our National Assembly, we will discuss with U.S. authorities on, on what's the problems with this ISP in the implementation process. And right away, Almost, I think, uh, 13 hours after my president's statements in, at our National Assembly, U.S. administration quickly responded that we will discuss all the issues on relevant communities about the problems uh, in, in the implementation process <coughs> of uh, U.S. trade agreement. So we, we, are, uh, we are rather on a quite a cooperative setting between the United States and Korea 
in passing that agreement more smoothly in Seoul, Korea, as we did, uh, including me and our embassy and a lot of senators and, and members of the House of Representatives in pushing through disagreements through U.S. Congress uh, in the last October. So, in conclusion, we will make it, and soon. Other questions? Uh, unification for Koreans is probably the, uh, one of the most difficult uh, challenges in the Korean history. I'm wondering if, you know, given that Korea will be reunified, uh, is Korea already thinking about post-unification uh, integration strategies? Because I think if there is a uh, sudden <laughs> unification, I think that the, the pre preparedness uh, for that would be very important. <coughs> and if you could shed some light on that, thank you. Thank you, Professor Park, for your great question. Unification is a very, very important issue for South Korea, definitely. Uh, two things. First, we should be unified, never under communist regime. It should be unified under free democratic and market economic environment. That's the precondition for us. Uh, if we cannot unify in that way, which should be the must for 70 million Korean population, including North Korea, then I think we should take time, as you said, Professor Park, in restoring the, uh, you know, some kind of homogeneity between North and South Korea. With the 60 years of separation, there are some you know, languages, and words, and dialects which are different between North and South Korea. Of course, we can communicate comfortably, but, but they have lived under a totally different oppressive regimes for quite so long without any input from outside without internet, without any diverse TV channels or radio channels, and they are actually not exposed to what the outside world is operating. So we need some time in restoring our homogeneity. Uh, so uh, two things. One, definitely North Korea should denuclearize. They should give up their nuclear ambition. It will threaten South Korea, it will threaten the countries in Northeast Asia, and even it will threaten the United States with a long-range missiles of more than 6,000 kilometers and so on. So we should denuclearize North Korea. If they comply with that denuclearization process, the international community will help North Korea to, to you know, live decent living, and we will exchange a lot in a lot of areas, including culture and you know, societic uh, you know, institutions and so on, so that we can remove some of the difference in our in our uh, you know, homogeneity, which has been uh, the must uh, during the several thousand years of our history. So we will have that kind of uh, you know exchange 
at the period of integration and period of exchange, including culture, economics, and politics, then the leadership of the two countries might reach a point, may reach a point when they think that it's better for us to, to integrate ourselves. That's the, you know, first the best scenario. But we are always precautious against any kind of a, you know, second best scenario, I should say, like Germany. Suddenly one day, North Korea begins to collapse. We are preparing against that situation too. That will cause a lot of, you know, cost for the international community. But that's the most must we must bear, and that's the cost we must bear with. So we are very carefully you know, preparing ourselves against that kind of sudden, sudden unification. That's why we will establish a unification fund. We will make the institution within this year with the aim of about $50 billion. And we will uh, ask the general public to chip in, although the amount is small. Of course, government will put some money there too. Businesses will put some money there too, so that unification uh, will be some more, you know, more uh, general issues in, in, in South Korea uh, and across the world. So uh, we would like uh, first best scenario, but we are prepared against the second best. Can I follow up on that, Mr. Ambassador? Can, yes. can you comment on the public the Republic about whether or not unification at this point is even worth the cost. There seems to be a growing sense among the younger generation. Yes. Perhaps this is not. Even the young people also would like to chip in so that they will have interest in the unification. Unification will be the must if opportunity arises. No South Koreans, no Korean people can reject that. We should, we should pursue the unification. And, but in the meantime, as Professor Park mentioned, we should really care about exchange of North and South Korea so that the uh, lack of homogeneity might be minimized when the opportunity of uh, unification uh, uh, arises. And also, this unification is not just a North-South Korean issue. It's a regional, it's a global issue, I should say. So our diplomacy should be always prepared for that kind of first best scenario as well as second best, because uh, unification of South and North Korea will have a very you know, serious implication to the countries in the region and to the global community. Other questions? Trisha. Mr. Ambassador, you mentioned that there were currently uh, 73,000 Korean students involved uh, at American universities. And at the same time, we also witnessed the growing of Korean studies um, programs at uh, universities across the country, including uh, ours here. So my question to you is, 
what do you foresee as the role of universities in fostering uh, the, the growth and the strengthening of the U.S. Korean alliance? There are a lot of uh, you know contributions that can be made, and that is already being made by many universities, uh, including uh, OSU, uh, <coughs> under the leadership of uh, Professor Lerner. First of all, I think knowing more about Korea is very crucial. Korea is not a country with only $2 billion of economic size. Now it's $1 trillion economy and $1 trillion trade volume and member of G20 and member of OECD. And now we belong to the donor countries at OECD. We, we are now the member of the, of the so-called DAC. Know, development Assistance Committee, the group of donor countries. <coughs> so, uh, so it's clear that uh, Korea is economically important and strategically important in the global community. <coughs> so, uh, universities, uh, you know, have all the areas uh, that facilitate more knowledge about Korea and some of the researches on Korea, including cultural economy, politics, and so on. And also, uh, of course, uh, our, we have an institution which may be of some help for the efforts of the universities through our Korea Foundation. Uh, they will try to help as many universities as possible in, in making the programs suitable for that kind of uh, efforts. And another, I think, the uh, areas of contributions will be university. It's clear that United States, you know, uh, uh, tertiary education is the best in the world. And Korea has a lot of uh, universities, 300 universities. and. 84% of high school graduates are going to college and they need some stimulus, they need some cooperation, they need some you know, inputs from uh, United States universities which will really upgrade and improve the quality of education in Korea. Of course there are good universities and, uh, and universities which need more inputs from the United States. I think the universities can have more programs with Korea's universities uh, you know, in every way. Uh, in Washington, D.C., there are a lot of students who are coming not for four years, not for whole graduate courses. They came to U.S. universities for one year, six months. Even for some students, they came here for three months and interacts with American people. So, you know, you know, fostering more knowledge about Korea and contributions of American universities to the development and sophistication of Korean universities. And third, the, the interaction of, of among people between Korean and American people can be contributed greatly by universities, which, are, which have the main purpose of interacting uh, among people. I know that OSU has more than uh, students from 150 countries. I heard from your presence, and 
134 languages are spoken here. So OSU is a really internationalized university, and I hope your contributions will be very crucial in Korea-U.S. relations in general, and also the sophistication of Korean universities, and more knowledge that <coughs> among the general public of the And for the students in the room, if you're interested in experiencing one of those 300 universities in Korea, we have all sorts of programs. So go over to East Asian Studies website, and we'll direct you to the right place. Other questions? You spoke about the pressure um, from the U.S. government and the uh, Korean government for North Korea to liberalize their markets. If, for instance, they were able to create a stable market economy under their current regime, what incentives do they have to reunify the, con the peninsula? No incentives at all. <laughs> now, the reason is that up to now, there's a basic conflict of interest in fostering the market in North Korea and the stability of the regime, North Korean regime. What's the market economy? That, that presupposes perfect information. Information from foreign countries, information within North Korea and so on. That flow of information sometimes will be very, very dangerous to such an oppressive regime of North Korea. So there's a you know, basic conflict of interest between the development of the market and the stability of the regime, you know, oppressive regime in North Korea. So I should say that North Korean regime do not like to see the market develop in North Korea. That's why in December 2009, they actually imposed some of the you know, denomination of currency because, because government does not play the role of feeding the general public in North Korea. You know, before they know, they knew some small markets developed, maybe 200 or 300, and there the food are exchanged to supply some materials to, uh, to exchange for food. Some kind of irregularities actually happen in, in North Korea. So regimes do not like that. And there are also some merchants, I should say, who earn a lot of money in that kind of totally restricted, oppressive economic institution. 2009 currency reform of North Korea, you know, uh, denomination from 100 one into 1 1, 100 versus 1, actually would like to see you know, the money uh, you know, that, were, that had been hoarded uh, at home to come out. It was a total failure. And pe people's, you know, grumblings and dissatisfaction rose to the heart because that, uh, you know, denomination actually freezed all the market, all the exchanges, and things like that. So. From then on, North Korean government actually withdrew from that kind of you know, restrictive, oppressive regime of the markets. Now, they actually condone the market. They don't like that to develop, but it seems as if they, they behave uh, as if they don't see 
the market sector function. I have a very interesting story that one of the American, great American in Virginia, who are actually helping in the people, patients in North Korea, around 200 or 250 you know, uh, patients with tuberculosis, not just a normal, there's no normal tuberculosis, but very, very serious tuberculosis. He is actually bringing medicine to individuals, 200 or 300. I asked him when he came back and visited my office because I would like to know what happens in North Korea. I, I asked him, how is the market operating? Have you ever seen the market? He told me, yes, I know there are markets, but I have never looked at it because when he passes before the market with some of the you know, guys, so-called guys, actually the man who supervises him, goes together you know, on the road you know, in front of the market. If he behaves as if he had a lot of interest in the market, these people who supervises him will think, aha, this, this doctor is now mainly interested in treating our people, but he would like to know something about our weak points you know, of our you know, economic structure or you know, institutional structure. That means they do not like the market. But because government cannot do the function of the market, no, function of the governments by feeding the population, by rationing the food. You know, naturally, there are some markets in I'm very, very interested in how these 200 or 300 markets, how will they affect the future of North Korea? Definitely, it means less government power, more autonomy of the people. When something happens, how these you know, North Koreans who are accustomed to the market react to any kind of uh, totally irrational restrictions and behavior of the government. That's a really very important point we should watch. Yeah, and if you're interested in that, the market's impact on current Korea, uh, there's a wonderful book, not too old, uh, by Barbara Dennett called Nothing to Envy, just a couple of years ago, and it, it's the best book I've ever seen in inside North Korea, and really studies the impact that these small markets have had. Other questions? Yes, in the back. Definitely a lot of lessons. Uh, well, it's a joke, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> in 2008 uh, at the University of Virginia, we had a very important meeting in September before Lehman collapse. Fifteen former finance ministers gathered at the university. We had a very good meeting. Uh, it was televised by CNBC, and it was actually called and chaired by Secretary John Snow of the United States, who was the Treasury Secretary in 2005. And I was the Finance Minister at the time of Korea, 
So uh, from Germany, from Afghanistan, from other countries, we gather together. And what shall we do uh, on the looming financial crisis at that time, in 2008, September? You know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac uh, was beginning to be bailed out. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, Lehman Brothers uh, were on the brink of bankruptcy and so on. So we talked a lot about Korean experience because, uh, because uh, Korea was, uh, uh, in the Asian crisis, was subject to the most standard authentic prescriptions, uh, not on their own, on Korea's own, but I should say imposed by IMF and imposed by G7, including the United States. It was a very, very severe, painful dosis for the cure of the financial crisis. Korea swallowed it. It was very painful. Our uh, unemployment rate was, uh, rose from 2.53 to 8.5, and we registered a negative growth. It was a very, very rare experience for us, which was very painful. But we swallowed it, and we really implemented that you know, painful policy restrictions at the time. And from then on, from 1998 up to 2008, that 10 years period of time was the time when Korea continues to swallow the package, implement the policies, and strengthening our economy. You know, you know, increase the capital of the financial sector, reduce the debt of the private companies, and uh, labor flexibility, and all kinds of things which are exactly the dosage of policies which are, now, which are now known, which would like to be imposed on Europe, which would like to be imposed on the United States, which is not a very you know, painless, painless package. So if I can give one you know, lesson that we got from from Asian crisis, we should prepare ourselves against any that kind of crisis. If we had not anticipated, and if we had not corrected the system uh, in a more you know, immune way, then the only option is to take some pain, swallow some bullets, so that economy can recover from the norm. It's, it's not easy. I'm just saying as an economist, it's not easy uh, as a politician. But, uh, but that's the only way we should go. So general public and, and policymakers should really cooperate with each other. In, in Asian crisis in Korea, all the 48 million populations actually brought their gold rings into the government so that they can be sold outside so that they can pay the interest and the principal what we actually owe to the international community. That's just an episode.
Uh, questions? Well, before you go, Mr. Ambassador, we have uh, a few students who I'd like to bring up. Some of our student leaders from the Korea Students Association and the Korean International Students Organization. Uh, Michael, Michael Lee, Michael Kwan, Katie Kim. Uh, guys, come on up. Um, Chung, Chung Yong Kim, are you here as well? Do you guys have a, a little token uh, to provide for the ambassador as a remembrance of his trip? Stay for a while and chat with the ambassador. He's graciously agreed to hang around for a while. Thank you guys and thank you all for coming.